Well, if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to continue studying through John's gospel. Uh, and as you're turning there, back in the, the 1960s, uh, there was something decisive that happened. Uh, and some of you who enjoy studying history, you might be thinking, well, duh. Uh, the, the 60s were a uh, tumultuous time. Uh, with the Vietnam War, uh, the civil rights uh, movement, uh, multiple high-profile assassinations uh, of leaders, uh, and then student revolts across uh, college campuses uh, around the country uh, led the, the entire nation really to, to be set on edge. Uh, and to a, to a certain extent, uh, the year 1968 was, was very similar uh, to uh, 2020 you know, with all that, that happened uh, and all uh, that it uh, sparked uh, in our nation. Uh, but the, the decisive change that I'm thinking about uh, is not related to uh, any of those things that I mentioned. Now, it was an underlying factor uh, in all of them, uh, but uh, not directly any one of those things and not limited to any one of those things. Uh, David Wells, uh, a, a pastor, professor, and, and theologian, talks about this change in this way. He says, in a nutshell, what happened was that our individualism, which had always been a potent factor in American life, turned inward in this decade. It withdrew from the outside world. And during the 1960s, a new worldview emerged. To a great majority of Americans, it now became clear that the self was what life was about. And I guess the, the previous idea of uh, American individualism, uh, we, we valued thinking for uh, ourselves. Uh, we, we valued making our own decisions. Uh, we valued uh, providing for yourself and, and working uh, to serve others either in a, in a personal or a communal way. Uh, but in the, the decade of the, the 60s, the, this new individualism uh, that has continued, it burst onto the scene very, uh, I guess, more in a, in a subtle way rather than bursting. But this new individualism is more focused upon discovering your inner potential, uh, boosting your self-esteem, uh, developing your own uh, personal morality or belief system so that you could discover yourself. And yet, what has this culture of individualism brought forth? Right? Well, what's the fruit of this idea? Well, uh, there is now a, a profitable industry uh, of those who are uh, working to help us discover ourselves. Right? Healers, consultants, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, counselors, writers who, who make their living uh, writing uh, self-help books. America currently has one-third of the world's psychiatrists and two psychotherapists for every dentist. And we have more counselors than librarians. Think about that. So, the, so this industry, this, this value of the, the individual uh, and the pursuit of the self has spawned this, this entire industry. But because this industry is rather expensive uh, to go and you know, visit a psychiatrist for years on end, uh, 
that, that's where there's been a, a proliferation of books, and it's kind of been now adopted that we are uh, supposed to be our own healers. Uh, that we are to, to look uh, inwardly at ourselves so that we can counsel uh, ourselves, look at our feelings, uh, and uh, figure out uh, deeper meaning uh, in life. And so our culture has, has been taught to think uh, according to the language of therapists, uh, according to the language of counselors. Uh, and th- this, this language and this ideology is rooted in feeling rather than in thinking. Right? Feelings are the barometer of truth. They, they are the, the mirror that reflects reality. You are what you feel, and don't let anybody question the way that you feel. And yet we haven't calculated the cost of these ideas. So David Wells, that same pastor I quoted just a moment ago, he says, I have been writing about these costs for years. Our sense of being disconnected, our loneliness, our loss of relational webs, the strains placed on families, the blank anonymity of much of our modern experience, the stresses that so much knowledge place upon our fragile psyches. The heightened internal tempo of too much change at too great a pace. The future that has become so threatening and the elevated levels of anxiety everywhere. Now, he wrote those words back in 2008. Uh, And and I think they, they ring even more true right now in 2021. And I bring all of this up because I firmly believe that we live in a country among a people who are a broken and hurting population. People who are looking for answers but don't even know what questions to ask. And our culture tells us to build our lives upon our own wisdom. Look inwardly. What do you feel that's what's true. Build upon it. Build upon the, the prevailing wisdom of the culture. And have you ever noticed that the prevailing wisdom of the culture changes constantly? Like, I'm trying to build, but you keep moving the foundation. And that's one way of looking at the world. One way of living in this world, right? Build upon your own understanding. But that's completely contrary to what Scripture calls us to. Rather than than beginning with the earthly wisdom of men as our foundation and then building upwards from there as if we will uh, accomplish uh, self-actualization, to use a psychological term, uh, what Scripture commands us to do is to begin with God's Word, to begin with who God is and understanding who He is, to understand who He has created us to be and how we are now to live. So the world says, start with man's wisdom and build upwards. God says, no, start with him and build downwards. Start with who he is, and then once we understand who he is, then we will really begin to understand ourselves and what we are called to do and be in this life. But if that's going to happen, if we're going to, to begin with who God is, how, how, do we, how do we get there, right? Because he's above us. He's beyond us. If we are going to begin with who God is and build downward, we actually need God to come down and reveal himself to us. 
to show us who we are, to instruct us. That's exactly what we have in John's Gospel. As we have been studying it, a recurring theme over and over again is that Jesus is the one who was sent down from heaven. He is the one whom God has sent to the earth to reveal who God is. If you remember back in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. We, we know God the Father by looking at the one He sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus explains the Father to us. And as we're going to continue studying in John chapter 7, as we saw last week, Jesus brought up the fact that He's going to be going back to where He came from. He's going to go to the one who sent Him. Uh, and uh, the people he is speaking to here in the temple, he says, you can't follow me. You're not going to be able to go to heaven. Startling words. But then, immediately after that, as Jesus is, is speaking to the, the people and the leaders, he's going to, to be speaking again to people who are searching for answers without really understanding what questions they should ask. And he, he's going to, to issue the most wonderful invitation in all of human history. An invitation that he uh, is going to make repeatedly throughout the course of his ministry. He's going to phrase it in different ways, uh, but ultimately the, the meaning is going to be all the same. As we, we look this morning in verses 37 to 39 in John 7, going to be entering into a new setting. Uh, the, the previous portions in John chapter 7 were either before uh, the feast, uh, verses 1 through 13, or verse 14 says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up. Now we have come to the end of the feast uh, in verse 37. Uh, in uh, this portion of Scripture, which goes from uh, 737 through the end of chapter 8, uh, is all going to take place on the final day of the Feast of Booths. And we're just going to look at the first three verses this morning, so I want you to read along with me. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us perfectly in your word and even more perfectly in your son. We ask now that you would grant us understanding as we swim in the depths of your truth. Father, open our eyes and shine the light of your spirit upon your word that we might comprehend all that you offer. All that you promise, that we might see and believe all that you have done, 
and trust in all that you will do in the future. Father, bless us with faith that leads to understanding. Understanding that leads to a transformation of our hearts and minds into the image and likeness of Christ, whom you have sent to save us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. And so on that, that last day of this feast in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to, to stand up and shout. He's going to extend this invitation to everyone who could hear him. He says, if anyone thirsts, come, drink. And that invitation spoken by Jesus on that day is not limited to those who would hear him. Uh, on that day, and it wasn't even limited uh, to that day or that century. It's a, an invitation that extends to all people everywhere. We are all invited to come to Jesus in faith. But what is the, the purpose of this invitation uh, at this very point in time? Why does Jesus stand up at this moment and shout that to the people? Well, namely, this invitation... It's intended to teach us about salvation. It's intended to, to teach us so that we would receive salvation through faith in Christ, that we would no longer look to ourselves, but look to Him. And as we are studying these verses this morning, we're going to see two truths about salvation that, that we have to receive in faith so that we would find joy and satisfaction in Christ rather than looking for, for satisfaction and joy in anything else. And we're going to look at these two truths, but I, but I want to first begin by just discussing a little bit of the, the background uh, to this invitation. Uh, and that, that first statement there in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, as good students of, of Scripture, we should understand that the context of uh, this Jewish feast. This is, this is something that is foreign to us, right? We've never attended one of these feasts. We don't know what happens on the last day. Uh, but anybody who had been to one of these feasts would immediately have a picture in mind of what it means when Jesus uh, is there on the last day and he stands up and, and shouts to the people. Now, back in Leviticus uh, 23... This uh, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles was prescribed. So uh, you, you can turn there if you want, but Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 43, this is the instruction for this feast. On the 15th day of the seventh month, which is the, the early fall in our calendar, late September or early October, it is when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. And you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the purpose of this uh, feast, which lasted uh, seven, seven days, and then there was an eighth day that was a, a special kind of day of rest uh, at the end, 
And for those seven days, what everyone in Israel was supposed to do was to gather tree branches uh, and make uh, tents or booths and sleep outside. That would have been a gorgeous weather in, in the, the fall there in, in the land of uh, Palestine. Uh, but, but they were to do this each and every year to remember how God had provided for the people of Israel for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. And there was a certain ritual that was associated with uh, each morning during this feast. Uh, At the dawn of each day, the the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would uh, fill this golden vessel full of water. Uh, And then they would proceed back to the temple grounds uh, where uh, the priests would march around the altar uh, and then they would pour out the the water uh, at the base of the altar of sacrifice for burnt offering. And all the while, the, the, the temple choir and the people would be singing from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would sing that, and then they would also sing Psalms 113 to 118, which is known as the Hallel, uh, the five hymns of praise. Uh, Hallel sounds like hallelujah. Right? That's where we get that from the Hebrew. Uh, and these, these ceremonies that would take place each morning to remember and recall God's provision of water in the wilderness, to remember His salvation of His people, They weren't prescribed in uh, the Old Testament, so you won't find it in any particular Old Testament text. But this was uh, a a practice and a ceremony that the the, the Jews in later centuries had uh, put together. Uh, And they did this for three purposes. To to remember the Lord's provision of water during those years in the desert. uh, To point to the future time uh, when the Lord would pour out His Spirit uh, in the latter days. And then thirdly, they would also add a prayer to uh, what they were doing. And they were asking God to provide uh, more rain in the future. Uh, And again, if this feast is is taking place in in late September or early October, you can imagine uh, that the, the heat and drought of the summer was on everyone's mind. If you've ever lived in the desert, uh, you can't wait for it to cool down. When it's finally that time of year where you're like, okay, we're slowly going to have some cool weather. It's been 110 for the last six weeks, and I am just dying. I, every time I open the door, it feels like I'm you know, putting my face in front of an oven. Uh, you, you've had that feeling. That's what uh, the, the land of Israel was like in the summer. Everyone's lips were parched. They were all hot and thirsty at this time of year. And this water ritual that took place each and every morning would have had salvation on the people's minds. And on the final day of the feast, the the priests wouldn't just walk around the altar one time. They would do it seven times in remembrance of uh, their victory over the city of Jericho. Because how did God bring victory over Jericho? They, They had to walk around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they had to walk around seven times. And then they blew the trumpet, and the walls came tumbling down. But but this was a commemoration because when when the Lord brought victory to the people in Jericho, that that was the the finality of now the people were in the promised land. And what could they do with those tents that they had been living in for 40 years? Yeah, they could get rid of them. 
Uh, And so on that eighth day, after you've been sleeping on the ground for a a solid week, it's not the most comfortable of places, uh, you would probably with joy be tearing down uh, that tabernacle uh, of tree branches that you had put together. But you would also be remembering that God was faithful to his promises and the ancient Israelites got to, to put away their tents and live in the promised land. The eighth and final day was a remembering of the salvation that God had brought for his people in the past. And at some point during this eighth day, we don't know exactly, it could have been during the water ritual. Or maybe it was after the water ritual as everyone is, is tearing down their tents and, and getting ready to, to go back to their homes scattered across Israel. It was at that point in time that Jesus made his invitation. If you look at that second part of verse 37. That's where we see the first truth about salvation in this passage. That salvation is offered to all who thirst. And Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the wording there in the Greek is very, very strong. And it should shock us. Because normally when rabbis taught, they didn't stand, they sat. But here Jesus is actually going to to stand up and he wants to get everyone's attention. The idea is that he is yelling at the top of his lungs because he wants everyone to look to him. And his invitation is simple. Three simple parts. First, if anyone thirsts, Jesus gives this condition. And again, it would have been common to everybody who's listening at that point in time, right? You're in the desert, it's hot. Like, yeah, everybody is thirsty. If anyone thirsts, second part, let him come to me. And this is a command in the Greek. If you are thirsty, come. And there's a second command. If you're thirsty, come and let him drink. And in making this invitation, Jesus is not merely saying, hey, guys, I have extra water. Anyone, anyone thirsty? Hey, he's not just saying that. He's not pointing merely to physical thirst, but to spiritual thirst. But, but what does that mean a spiritual thirst. Well, let's think for, for a second on what it means to be physically thirsty. Right? When you are physically thirsty, how does your mouth feel? Dry, parched. And you begin to have a, a desire to quench that thirst. So you begin looking around for liquid. Right? You're like, water would be great, but sometimes uh, anything that, that will help to parch my thirst to bring relief, to satisfy and the longer you go without drinking water, what happens? Your, your thirst just grows more and more. And when you are physically thirsty, you're recognizing something. That, that your body needs something that you, in and of yourself, cannot provide. Right? Does the thirsty person just need to look inside themselves and find their inner water? Uh, and then they'll be good. No, that, that's not what the thirsty person does. The thirsty person is saying, I need help from the outside to relieve my thirst. They must turn to water in that moment. Therefore, to be spiritually thirsty means that you have a parched soul. 
a soul that realizes that you are in need of something and something that you cannot provide yourself. You have to look outside of yourself if you are going to uh, quench your spiritual thirst. So Jesus stands up and makes this invitation. And it echoes another invitation from previously in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. The prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. How do you come and buy when you have no money? It's free. It says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Indeed, that is what we as sinners should do. But what are we more prone to do? Exactly what Isaiah questions, right? Why do you labor for those things that are not going to satisfy you? Why do you spend your money on bread that's not going to to state your hunger. Why do you pursue those things that will not satisfy you as God can? We build our lives upon those things in the pursuit of those things. We build our lives according to our own wisdom, again, hoping to find joy and satisfaction. And yet we labor day in and day out, and yet what is it we find? That none of the things that we have been pursuing truly satisfy us. Or to put it in another way, we are lost at sea, dying of thirst. And we look at the, the salt water around us. And we say, well, well, maybe that will help. Maybe that will satisfy my thirst. But what happens when you drink salt water? It, it accelerates your dehydration. It doesn't satisfy you. It just makes you more and more thirsty. Reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We turn to so many other things in life, seeking and pursuing satisfaction only to find that they don't actually satisfy. They don't bring joy. And America is the most prosperous nation that the world has ever seen. And yet at the same time, we are the most unhappy and depressed nation that the world has ever seen. And I think those two things go hand in hand. We are building... From the earth up rather than from heaven down. We're, we're looking to ourselves for the, the meaning of life. We are looking to ourselves to find spiritual truth and deeper satisfaction. That just doesn't work. And yet here we have the Son of God sent down from heaven who has come down and He is offering to satisfy. He is offering Himself. He's saying, turn to me. Anyone who thirsts, come to me. 
and He will satisfy. But what exactly does that mean that Jesus will, will satisfy our spiritual thirsts? Well, a few weeks ago, I mentioned three components to faith. Right? There is knowledge. You have to know before you can believe. Knowledge should then lead to conviction. Moving beyond I know the answer to do I believe the answer? Am I convinced that this is true? Knowledge, conviction, then leads to trust. If I know and then I truly am convinced that something is true then I need to begin to act and to build my life trusting that what I know and believe is true. Those three components of faith are connected with those three verbs, those three parts of Jesus' invitation here. He says, if anyone thirsts, this is knowledge. If anyone understands the state of their own soul, that we are parched, that we are lacking in something, that we are spiritually thirsty because that we have sinned against and separated ourselves from a holy God. Do we recognize our thirst? And if we, if we don't recognize our thirst, then there's nothing else for us. Right? If we don't recognize our sinfulness, our separation from God, then... But we can't come to Christ. What did Jesus say? He came not to save the righteous, but sinners. It's not the, the, the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But we have to understand and know where we are, our spiritual bankruptcy. Do we see and recognize our spiritual thirst? Do we have a longing for hope, for deliverance, for peace, forgiveness? Salvation, liberation from the power of sin. Do we, do we long for eternal life, a, a closer relationship with God? Are, are we experiencing that? I love what the, the church father Augustine said. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That is a spiritual thirst, that, that inner restlessness where we are searching and pursuing. We don't know what, but we have to begin to see that Jesus is the what that we need to pursue. If anyone thirsts, second part, let him come to me. That's, that's conviction. Now, are, are you convinced that Christ is the one that you need to pursue? Right, that, that invitation to come, right? If Jesus said this and he was standing over here, what would you do? We would stand up and walk over to him, right? Uh, if he were in his presence, that would involve our feet. But since Jesus is, is in heaven, we come to him now in prayer, trusting everything that he has said. Well, we come to him in faith, convinced that all he has said is true, approaching him in prayer. And then the third part, let him drink. Again, this is the, the trust aspect. This is taking what we have become convinced of and now acting upon it. Taking it into uh, our inner being. And this just echoes what Jesus has said previously. If you turn back to John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, as Jesus is speaking with the Samaritan woman, and they're at a well there in Sychar. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then John 6, verse 57, Jesus, in pointing to the fact that the people need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. The people were kind of like, that's really gruesome. But, but what Jesus was saying was that they needed to, to trust in Jesus and take him into their innermost being. Looking to him in faith. Again, knowing who he is, being convinced of that, and then acting upon it, trusting in it. That is what we are called and invited to do here, once again, in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. And if you're here this morning, if you are experiencing this uh, spiritual dryness, this uh, parched soul, there is a, an answer, there is a solution to that. And it's not found inside of you, it's found outside of you. That we look to Christ in faith. He offers salvation and satisfaction to anyone and to everyone who recognizes their thirst, who comes to Him and who drinks. And we will taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're here this morning and you've never looked to Christ in faith, I would plead for you to do that. Trust no longer in yourself. Stop looking to yourself for joy, for satisfaction, for meaning, for healing. Christ is the answer. He is above and beyond us. We are called to trust in who He is and trust in what He has done. What He has accomplished on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. The, the guilt that is creating the spiritual dryness within us that is creating that spiritual thirst. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for that and who now promises righteousness and eternal life to all who would trust in Him. If we would look to Him in faith and drink deeply from all that He promises. What we see here is salvation is offered to everyone who thirsts. It's a universal invitation spans across time, across space, uh, to all people and all cultures. And there is no limitation to this invitation. That's the first truth that we see here regarding salvation. And there's, there's a second truth concerning salvation that we see here in verses 38 and 39. That salvation transforms believers into aqueducts. If you look with me at those verses... Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus transitions to what will take place among those who recognize their spiritual thirst, who, who come to Him and who drink. Something happens to them in that moment. 
says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But again, what, what does that mean? Right? I, I have believed my chest isn't leaking. So, so what, is, what is he saying here? How does living water f- flow from those who have believed in Jesus? Well, the idea is that if anyone uh, thirsts and, and looks to Jesus in faith, they will become a conduit of blessing to others. Uh, as they carry the living water uh, that Jesus provides uh, to uh, others who are thirsty. Uh, th- that is the, the sense here. It doesn't mean that we as believers uh, are the source of living water. J- Jesus is the source. He is the, the fountain uh, of living waters. Uh, but when we believe, uh, we become conduits of grace, mercy. We become conduits for the message of the gospel. And again, uh, this echoes what Jesus said to uh, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, that the water I will give uh, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, And then verse 39 further clarifies what Jesus means in verse 38, that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, But the Holy Spirit wasn't given at that point in time because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, And in John's gospel, uh, Jesus is glorified at the cross. The Holy Spirit couldn't be sent until Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. Uh, and then Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to, to dwell within each and every believer. And, and what we see in these two verses tell us a whole lot about what Christ calls us to be as disciples. That what we receive, we are expected to pass along to others. Again, we are not the source of eternal life. Christ is the source. But he gives us the living water uh, that has satisfied us. And that water is not supposed to stay with us. It's supposed to keep flowing uh, continually forward. Uh, And so again, in this way, salvation transforms believers into aqueducts. An aqueduct is a a man-made structure that would allow water to flow uh, from uh, one part of a, 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 a geographic region to another. Usually, uh, they're they're built in the, the mountains uh, and uh, you know tapped into mountain lakes or mountain streams, uh, and then gravity would carry uh, the water uh, to a city down below. So, take for instance uh, the uh, the city of Rome. Okay, Rome was sustained by eleven different aqueducts. That carried water uh, to it from up to uh, as far as 57 miles away. Uh, think about that. In ancient times, that, that's a remarkable uh, achievement. Uh, and what's amazing is if you go to, to Spain and Italy and, and France, uh, you see these Roman aqueducts that are still standing today. Uh, there are major tourist attractions uh, in those uh, nations. The aqueducts that were built 2,000 years ago. And, and that's, that's impressive, right? When you see an aqueduct, if you look at uh, California, there's a whole series of aqueducts that, that bring water to it. Southern California is fed from an aqueduct uh, from the Colorado River, which is on the border between California and Arizona. Think about how far that water has to go uh, to, to get to Los Angeles and San Diego. 
That that water is is carried forth. And those are impressive aqueducts. But, But what's even more impressive is the aqueduct uh, of the Christian believers, uh, of those who have been carrying the faith for the last 2,000 years. See, when Jesus was uh, ascended and and glorified, he he sent his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. 120 believers in an upper room. 120 people. And what was sent to them was living waters, the the Spirit. And those living waters didn't just stay with them. Right? Christianity didn't die with 120 people. Those those 120 people were were aqueducts, were were conduits, were channels for living water to, to go through so that it would flow to others who were thirsty, to others who were experiencing a a spiritually parched soul. That is what we are called to be. Aqueducts. All that we have been given should not remain with us. We are called to pass it on. But what's our, what's our temptation as believers? We like to be reservoirs. We don't like to be aqueducts. No, we, we, we love to... To gather, to learn, to, to hoard more and more. But when it comes to, to channeling that toward others, well, sometimes we hesitate to disciple others, right? We struggle to, to sacrifice our desires in order to, to love and serve others. We grow timid and, and fearful when there's an opportunity to, to share the gospel with someone, Right? But we have to understand that what has been entrusted to us it was not supposed to just stay with us. Right, to, to give another illustration of this, if you've all, or if any of you have, have walked along uh, the Boise River, right? There's parts uh, along the, uh, the green belt that you'll see the river, and it's just beautiful. It's flowing, and you're like, I could swim in that. I could do that. Uh, but then there's also, if you keep walking, there's little pockets where the river has kind of branched out into a pond where the water is no longer flowing through. It's just sedentary right there. Now, when you look at that water, you don't think, I could go swim in that. You're like, I need to walk quickly before the mosquitoes come and before uh, the the algae comes up and creeps out or the swamp thing uh, jumps out and uh, chases me down the green belt. You can tell the difference between water that is continually flowing and water that is stagnant, right? And we are tempted to become stagnant water, to cease growing ourselves, to cease pouring into others. But that is not what we have been saved for. We have been saved to be aqueducts. We we have been saved to continually channel uh, and direct the living waters, the hope, the truth, the grace, the gospel that we have to others. I love what one pastor has, has said. He's phrased it this way, that what Jesus has done in us, he now wants to do through us. He has brought salvation to us. 
He has changed us and transformed us, put off the old self. We are now a new creation in Christ. And he is calling us to, to, to pass that on to others. So if we are going to come to him, if we recognize our spiritual thirst, and if we're going to come to Jesus, we also need to be ready to go for him as well. To be used by him to reach others. Because as I said earlier, our culture is dying of spiritual thirst. Right? I'm sure you have all encountered those who right now are, have placed their hope in politics. Who are paralyzed in fear. Who are uh, incapacitated with anxiety who are, are laboring to, to build security in, in wealth or possessions, none of those things will satisfy. None of those things will bring joy. None of those things is a true solution to the spiritual thirst that they are experiencing. We have the living water that they need. We have Christ. And we can't keep that to ourselves. We are called to go and proclaim Him. We are commanded to pass along all that we have been entrusted with. And these are the two truths that, that we see about salvation this morning. That it is offered to all who thirst. And that it transforms believers into aqueducts. But even bigger than, than those two truths is really the, the question that's been hanging over this whole chapter. Right, what is it we're going to do with Jesus? Now the question shifts, what are we going to do with this invitation? Right? We all get invitations throughout the, the calendar year. Right? And we get these invitations, and, and some invitations you completely ignore because they're a waste of time. Right? Everyone's received those emails inviting you to participate in a survey. No thanks. There's other invitations that we receive, and as soon as we see them we immediately hope to get out of attending it, right? They're like, ah, I don't want to go to this. What, what can I do? And, you know, an invitation from your dentist to schedule your next appointment. An invitation from your, your boss to attend a, a work party, maybe. And there are other invitations that we receive and with apathy and indifference. Eh, could, I don't care if I go or if I don't go. Other invitations that we, that we receive and, and we wish to attend, but we're unable to because of a, a prior commitment or something that is, that's more important. I was talking with uh, somebody last week, and I was inviting him to the Super Bowl party, and he says, oh, I can't make it. It's my, my kid's birthday. And I'm like, dude, check your priorities. Come, come on. Uh, and he, he's, he has his priorities right. But uh, then there are other invitations that when we receive them, we rejoice. We are so excited to get this invitation. And we immediately go and we mark it on our calendar. We immediately go and check and see. And if there's anything on the calendar already, we say, I need to get that off. I need to go reschedule that because this is my top priority. This is the, mo the most that I want to do, the, the best thing that I want to do. We look forward to the event with anticipation. All of those different responses to invitations we regularly receive. But and the, the big question is, how will we receive this invitation from Christ? 
How will we respond to it? Will you hear it with indifference? You're hoping to put that off? Maybe if I just don't answer, they won't notice I'm there or not there. That's not how this invitation works. Some may be hostile to this invitation. And there are many who, who do not acknowledge a spiritual thirst. You're saying I'm incomplete? Saying I, I am a, a sinner in need of help from someone else? Yeah, that, that's, that's the invitation. That's the truth of the gospel. But my prayer is that each of us would respond to this invitation that still stands this very moment, that we would respond to it with faith, with trust, with joy, receiving all that Christ has promised. And if you have already accepted this invitation, if you have already responded to it in faith, praise the Lord. But that's not the end of it for you. It's actually the beginning. Because remember, this invitation transforms you. And as we have looked at this invitation this morning, if you're a believer and you have received this, the the fine print at the bottom of the invitation says, now go and tell everyone else. Go and pass it on. Go and carry this message of hope in Christ to anyone and everyone who will hear you. To anyone and everyone who is thirsty, point them to Jesus. Tell them, go to him and drink deeply because he will satisfy you. Amen.